Hello and welcome to the Estate Planners Podcast. My name is Anthony Brinkman and this is the place for will writers, estate planners and solicitors that are interested in finding out the tips, tools and technicalities to best help their clients. This is episode 25 entitled Marley vs Rawlings. Marley vs Rawlings, 2014. Some of you might remember this case, even if you weren't active in the profession at that time, as it actually hit some of the national headlines back then. Diving straight into the case, it centred around the validity of a will, and specifically Section 9 of the Wills Act 1837, often referred to as the Formalities, which covers the correct procedure for signing and witnessing of a will. The relevant section states that no will shall be valid unless it is in writing and signed by the testator and that it appears that the testator intended by his signature to give effect to the will. Another act, the Administration of Justice Act 1982 and specifically section 20 empowers the court to rectify or correct a will in limited circumstances including where the mistake is due to a clerical error. So, what happened? In 1999, Alfred and Maureen Rawlings were visited by their solicitor to execute wills which he had drafted on their instructions. The wills were very simple and mirrored in that their wishes were identical and the only difference in the wills was that which identified the maker. Each spouse appointed the other as executor and left his or her entire estate to the other, but if the other had predeceased or survived the other for less than a month, then the entire estate was to be left to Terry Marley. Mr Marley was not related to the testators, but was treated by them as their son. By mistake, the solicitor gave each of the testators the other's will to sign and each signed the will meant for the other. Mrs Rawlins died in 2003, and the error was not picked up at that time. In 2006, Mr Rawlings died, and only then was the error spotted. At that time, Mr Rawlings was a joint tenant of a property with Mr Marley where both of them lived. The tenancy of that property therefore passed to Mr Marley, and what remained of the estate was £70,000. Mr and Mrs Rawlings did have two sons, Terry and Michael Rawlings. They challenged the validity of the will. If the will was found to be valid, then Mr Marley would inherit the £70,000. If the will was found to be invalid, then Mr Rawlings would be deemed to have died intestate and the £70,000 would be split equally between their two sons. Mr Marley began probate proceedings. The judge dismissed his claim that the will should be rectified to reflect the testator's intentions, i.e. so that it contained the provisions as set out in the will that his wife had signed. The judge found firstly that the will did not satisfy the requirements of section 9 of the Wills Act, and secondly that even if it had done so, she was unable to rectify the will under section 20 of the Administration of Justice Act as it should not be considered a clerical error. This second point does beg the question, what definition of clerical was being used there? 
and we'll come back to that a little bit later. Mr Marley appealed the decision and the Court of Appeal actually upheld the decision of the judge that the will did not satisfy the formalities. Having concluded the matter on this first ground, it didn't go on to consider the second ground which would have addressed the point of defining the word clerical. The case then went to the Supreme Court. Now, just to sideline a little bit into the structure of the UK court system, it's worth noting the role that the Supreme Court plays. From their website, it states that the Supreme Court, as well as being the final court of appeal, plays an important role in the development of UK law. It hears appeals on arguable points of law of general public importance, and it concentrates on cases of the greatest public and constitutional importance. It is the highest court in the UK. The court doesn't decide on very many cases every year. In the year of this case, 2014, it actually decided on just 90 cases throughout the whole year, for example. And consider the nature of this case that we're looking at today. From a common sense perspective, we have here a couple whose intention was pretty clear. They both wanted the same distribution of their estates, and they'd taken the trouble to engage a paid professional to carry out their wishes. And that professional had made a simple and what, in retrospect, is a quite understandable mistake. It's human error. And yet, it seemed that following the strict rule of law, this couple's wishes would not be carried out, which, of course, jeopardises the public's confidence in the legal system, wouldn't you say? So, let's return to the Supreme Court and see what happened next. The first point of consideration was the question of whether Section 9 of the Wills Act had been complied with. There is some additional relevant case law cited by the court from a case of Fuller v. Strum, 2002, in which we have the following. Before admitting the will to probate, the judge must be satisfied that it truly represents the testator's intention and that the testator knew and approved of its contents. If the judge is satisfied that only part of the contents were known and approved, then those parts with which he was not so satisfied should be struck out. So, intention is important here, and is, as mentioned, the common sense point that seemed to be omitted from the lower court's findings. Until recently, there have been no statutory provisions relating to the proper approach to the interpretation of wills. It was a matter for the courts, who have tended to approach it differently to the approach adopted for other documents. Over the last 40 years, the House of Lords and the Supreme Court have laid down the correct approach to the interpretation of commercial contracts, being that the concern is to find the intention of the party or the parties to a contract. It does that by identifying the meaning of relevant words in light of the ordinary meaning of those words, the purpose of the document, other provisions of that document, and the facts that are known or assumed by the parties at the time the document was executed. The Supreme Court considered that when it comes to interpreting wills, the same approach should be taken. One key difference, of course, between a will and a commercial contract is that a contract is made between two or more parties, whereas a will is a unilateral document made by a single person. However, other unilateral documents and notices are approached by the courts in the same way as they approach commercial contracts, 
one example being patents. A notice and a patent are both documents intended by its originator to convey information, and so too is a will. And there is already a principle that exists from a very old case of Boys versus Cook, 1880, that when interpreting a will, the court should, quote, place itself in the testator's armchair. And this brings us back to the 1982 Administration of Justice Act, this time moving on to section 21, entitled Interpretation of Wills, General Rules as to Evidence. And that states, 1. This section applies to a will. A. Insofar as any part of it is meaningless. B. Insofar as the language used in any part of it is ambiguous on the face of it. C. Insofar as evidence, other than evidence of the testator's intention, shows that the language used in any part of it is ambiguous in the light of surrounding circumstances. And two, insofar as this section applies to a will, extrinsic evidence, including evidence of the testator's intention, may be admitted to assist in its interpretation. So this confirms that evidence is admissible to the court when construing the meaning of a will, and that includes the surrounding circumstances. It also indicates that in those circumstances, A, B or C, then direct evidence of testator's intention is admissible for interpretation. This would include what he told the drafter of the will, or another person, or by what was in any notes he made or earlier drafts of the will which he may have approved or caused to be prepared. So moving on to rectification. Section 20 of the Act states that if a court is satisfied that a will is so expressed that it fails to carry out the testator's intention in consequence A of a clerical error or B of a failure to understand his instructions, it may order that the will shall be rectified so as to carry out his intentions. So, the issues at hand in the appeal were threefold. First, that Mr Rawlings' will, properly interpreted, should be read in effect as if it was the document signed by his wife. When looking at this point, the court acknowledged that it was clear from the face of the two documents that they were signed on the same date by a cohabiting husband and wife and were in very similar terms and in the same style and had the same witnesses. Whilst not mutual wills, they were clearly closely related and therefore each could properly be looked at when interpreting the other. When one looks at the two documents, it's obvious what has happened. And in particular, it's obvious that Mr Rawlings intended the will to be in the form of the wife's will. Secondly, that the extent of Mr Rawlings' knowledge and approval of the content of the will was such that it could be validated, albeit with some deletions. This is a rather key point here. Clearly, Mr Rawlings could not have known and approved the contents of the will because it wasn't his will. However, the argument was that Mr Rawlings didn't know and approve the contents of those parts of the will that related to his wife. Therefore, by deleting those parts of which he didn't know and approve, as is allowed, the will would still work. Now, whilst the judge considered that this was, in his words, an ingenious proposal, it wasn't practical as it became, again, in his own words, a word game in which selective parts of the will were going to be deleted. 
whereas the ability for the courts to so delete a portion of the will that they're not convinced of the testator's knowledge and approval is intended really to be for standalone portions. And the third point was that the will should be rectified so as to accord with Mr Rawlings' intentions. Now the court found that rectification would be possible, but it had to be satisfied about the fact that it did satisfy section 9, the formalities that it had been signed and witnessed correctly. So why did the earlier two courts consider that section 9 hadn't been complied with? Well section 9a states that the will must be signed by the testator. Those earlier two courts had found that, keeping it simple, the will wasn't signed by the testator, it was signed by the spouse. And 9b states that it appears that the testator intended by his signature to give effect to the will. Again, that would be a fail if it wasn't the testator who signed the will. And the final point was, of course, that the testator knew and approved of the contents, which, as mentioned, clearly he didn't. With that said, a quite key element of this case was this, and I'll quote directly from the judge's findings. Whilst it's clear, even on a cursory reading of the will, that something has gone seriously wrong, it is unchallengeable that Mr Rawlings signed it, and that he did so both on the face of the document and, as a matter of fact, with the intention of it being his last will and testament. Thus, whatever else may be said about the document, it is, on its face, unambiguously intended to be a formal will, and it was, on its face, signed by Mr Rawlings, in the presence of two witnesses, on the basis that it was indeed his will. In other words, the interpretation of the document was being distinguished from the procedural formalities of signing and witnessing the will. Finally comes the point about whether this could be considered a clerical error and therefore able to be rectified. So, to summarise up to this point, we have a document, which clearly is a will, albeit not the testator's will, which has been signed by Mr Rawlings, with the intention of that being his will, it's been witnessed correctly, and therefore, Supreme Court found that Section 9, the formalities, were satisfied. That being the case, it then comes down to the question of whether or not this was a clerical error and therefore able to be rectified. If you recall, the first hearing found that it wasn't a clerical error and the Court of Appeal actually didn't ever take that point up. The case of Bell v. Giorgio, 2002, was cited to clarify the starting point for understanding this term clerical. In that case, it says, the essence of the matter is that a clerical error occurs when someone, who may be the testator himself, or his solicitor, or a clerk, or a typist, writes something which he did not intend to insert, or omits something which he did intend to insert. The nature of this case is rather different, of course, as this wasn't about a typing error, or inserting or omitting the wrong word or words into the document. The Supreme Court decided that this rather narrow meaning should be broadened. They said that, the expression can carry a wider meaning, namely a mistake arising out of office work of a relatively routine nature, such as preparing, filing, sending and organising the execution of, and that the expression has to be interpreted in context. There was some 
concern expressed about the fact that taking this path does nothing to discourage carelessness, but concluded that the term clerical should be given a wide rather than a narrow definition. They also, interestingly, pointed out that the flavour, the intention of the 1982 Act, which we've mentioned a couple of times, is clearly in the direction of making the law on wills more flexible and rendering it easier to validate a will than previously. Even the very title of section 17 is a relaxation of formal requirements for making wills. An important observation was made and an example given where the judge said, if a solicitor is drafting two wills and accidentally cuts and pastes the contents of B's draft will onto what he thinks is A's draft will and hands it to A, who then executes it as his will, that would be rectifiable under section 20 as this would fall very definitely under the term clerical. Under the same definition, handing the entire will to A instead of B would not be rectifiable, and this seems inconsistent from a practical perspective. And in conclusion, therefore, the Supreme Court allowed the appeal and held that the will should be rectified so that it contained the typed parts of the will signed by the late Mrs Rawlings in place of the typed parts of the will signed by Mr Rawlings. Okay, so what have we learned then from this case as practitioners in this profession? Well, firstly, I should just reiterate the point made by the judge that it does nothing to discourage carelessness. Don't take this as a, a license to relax your administrative diligence. I'm sure you wouldn't, of course. The case did, in the end, get heard by three courts before the outcome was concluded. And I can't help but wonder what was left from that £70,000 estate after all of that had been finished off. Secondly, I find that this is one of those cases where the outcome was satisfying. Justice prevailed. It was very clear what the testator wanted to happen. And in the end, the law supported that, albeit a rather narrow escape. It had to go all the way to the Supreme Court. But what helped was just how clearly the testator's intention could be seen. So how can we apply that in our client interactions? Well, Unsurprisingly, I again have to point you in the direction of your contemporaneous notes when you're seeing a client. The better your notes, the more thorough they are, the more you're going to be able to evidence what the testator was trying to achieve. And lastly, let's not overlook the most obvious point of all. Make sure your clients sign the right will. I hope you found this episode interesting and useful. I know it kind of got a bit involved in terms of the court's decisions and the toing and froing of how the judge was considering the different evidence, but I think that's quite useful to, to know, to understand. As practitioners, we kind of need to be able to see the, the end game for our wills and to see just what types of things the courts do end up considering in those circumstances where something is contested. So let me finish off by wishing you a happy and productive new year. This is the first episode of 2024. And that means that the podcast has now actually been running for a full 12 months. So thank you to all of the loyal listeners, all of you that have subscribed and followed the podcast, and for the very kind feedback that I've been receiving. It is all very much appreciated. Until the next episode, all the best. And thank you for listening.